You are listening to the Evolution Exchange Podcast Australia, a melting pot of ideas and inspiration shared by some of the most successful tech leaders in Australia. I'm Matt. I help connect businesses with tech talent, and today I'm your host. So hello and welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm joined by Richard, Ronan, Doug, and Adav to discuss how to cultivate a motivated, accountable, and driven engineering team. In this podcast, we'll be covering the key ingredients to in building a high-performance engineering culture, why understanding ownership is so important to building high-performing engineering teams, what mechanisms, tools, and cultural rituals are the most effective in keeping teams engaged and performing, and how the assessment of engineers has changed given the new tools in the technology space. With that said, let's get straight into the introductions from our panelists, and I'll start with you, Richard. Hi everyone. Uh, yeah, my name is Richard Dean. I'm the Chief Technology Officer at a company called Amazon. Uh, we're Australia's fourth largest telco. Uh, I've been in my role now for going on four or five years, uh, long enough that my team called me post-technical, which is a bit unkind, but probably quite accurate. Uh, I come from a software engineering background. I was a, a Ruben Al's developer and a Java developer way back in the day. Um, but thankfully for my team, I don't touch the tools very much anymore. Um, and then my passion is really centered around, um, you know, finding elegant technology led solutions to, to problems that, you know, could be impactful for our customers and then building, trying to build cultures of high performing teams with like continuous improvement and growth and sort of deeply embedded and rooted in them. So good to be here. Thanks Richard. Ronan, I'll pass it to you next. All right, thanks, Matt. Hi, everyone. My name is Ronan Ryan. I'm the VP of Engineering for the digital team at Macquarie. Um, the digital team at Macquarie um, supports all of the consumer-facing products um, in the bank, so the personal bank, car loans and home loans, and we also do some um, business banking products as well. Um, I love the role of VP of Engineering because I, I think it's, it's, it's a sort of a mix of people and technology. Um, and I often think that like, my main deliverable as VP is a healthy and functioning engineering organization. Uh, and I think like one of the most important things about building a, a functioning engineering organization is empowered and accountable teams. So I'm like, this is a topic that's uh, top of mind for me at the moment. So looking forward to talking to you guys about it. Thanks. Thanks, Ronan. And Doug, I'll pass to you next. Thanks, Matt. Uh, so I'm Doug Rathbone. I'm Chief Technology Officer for Airtasker and uh, we're a services marketplace launched in Australia in 2011 and now available in five countries globally. Uh, I've been in software development for a little over 20 years in a range of roles uh, across digital marketing, cloud services, uh, and a range of SaaS and marketplace products. So uh, maybe similar to um, Richard, uh, for those who remember an earlier time on the internet, I'm from the Pearl generation. Um, uh, I w wouldn't like to maybe label myself as post-technical quite yet, but um, maybe getting on. Um, you know, I think um, one of the things I'm most excited about, I think, is, is something we all share today from, from chatting to you earlier, and that is that, um, you know, I, I really like to build uh, effective engineering and product organizations um, that are, are highly empowered. Um, I, uh, before Airtasker, spent a, a stint working at Amazon in Seattle for about seven years, uh, working across their, their marketplace, uh, then AWS in, in developer tools and, and in Alexa as well. And I think one of the things I really took away from my time there was, was this sense of um, what can be accomplished with such a small amount of people if you just really uh, focus on giving people um, the space and the empowerment to really go uh, work backwards from their users and, and 
um, have you know, high levels of ownership over um, what's going on in the business. So really excited to talk with you all today a little bit about um, how you go about building uh, engineering organizations that are effective uh, and hopefully learning a little bit a lot along the way from you all. Thanks, Dav. And Nadav. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Nadav. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for Blueberry Markets. Blueberry Markets is the, um, oh, it's Australia's highest rated uh, forex broker. So if you ever want to trade. Um, I lead technology and product throughout Blueberry and its um, sub-companies. I'm very passionate about using technology uh, to save time, to make life easier. Uh, all of, anyone who has kids probably can appreciate not having time. So technology is a great way to buy time back. Um, I own a video game studio on my free time. And uh, yeah, just love technology in general and really use it as an enabler to do anything. Thanks for that. Yeah. Nice. Thanks all for the introduction. So we'll get straight into the questions now. Uh, the first question brought forward from uh, yourself, Richard, which is, what are the key ingredients in building a high-performance engineering culture? So Rona might get you to start us off with this one and give us your thoughts on this first question. Um, yeah. So high-performance, I think, you know, I, I always like to think of start at the, at the start and work backwards so what, what do we want we want teams to be successful and then like okay how, how do we make teams successful well they need to be motivated and if i think back to sort of earlier in my career like when were the times that i was most motivated and it was when someone gave me something that was mine so earlier it was like this is the problem that's yours to fix as i got more senior maybe it was a project that was yours and then like as you get more and more senior it's like it's your team or it's your division to run so it's like stepping backwards i think then that gets us to empowerment and to ownership which i think is uh, something that I'm, I'm keen to talk about so thanks Ryan. uh doug yeah i think uh, it's it's quite similar to what ronald shared i think for me there's really three key things that um are kind of ingredients that i think about effective engineering organizations or cultures and and for me, one of them is is what I uh, mentioned in my intro, this kind of concept of, of ownership, or I guess reflecting on what uh, Ryan said, um, you know, I think understanding what, um, what your mission is and being empowered to go after it really starts with you being given a problem and, uh, uh, you know, being given the, the support to go after it, whether it's a, at an engineering, like junior IC level where, you, where you're kind of given... Uh, a user story that's framed as a problem that you can then, uh, you know, go um, contribute a bit of bit of code that actually solves the problem versus being told what to do by your senior engineers. And then I guess if you kind of level up to uh, lean, uh, team leaders and, and senior leaders in the business, again, being given the scope to actually um, own, uh, you know, user problems and um, own them completely so that you can live and die by your own decisions. The second thing I think is uh, is, is, I guess, a follow-on from that is, and is this concept of um, accountability. I think uh, at all levels of the organization, um, you know, I think the inverse of, of accountability is this kind of trust within the organization that you can um, uh, fail uh, and learn from mistakes and uh, making sure that teams understand what their goals are 
and that uh, individual contributors understand what their, um, I guess, career paths look like so that they can then hold themselves and those around them accountable to that, I think is really important to me. And then uh, I think the third bit that, that um, I guess, dovetails into both ownership and accountability is this concept of, of user obsession. So whether it's you know, a back of house platform team that's focused on internal customers or users um, or uh, you know a front of house team that's focused on building customer facing uh, product um, actually anchoring a lot of your decisions towards what the the business and your users needs I think breeds a much more dynamic engineering organization uh, because technical leaders start to make um, better trade-offs and better decisions uh, outside of just I guess, the trope around gold plating when they're um, really able to anchor towards uh, their users and and, uh, and business needs uh, and be empowered to then you know find the right fit uh, in terms of solution for those things. So yeah, they're the three things for me: ownership, accountability, and user obsession. Awesome. Thanks, the dog. Sorry, the dog next, please. Yeah, it's um. I think everybody touched on most of the things I believe that make for a really high-performing team. But I think one of the things that's missing for me and I think is really core is also agency and enabling people, giving them accountability and agencies is not enough. It actually needs to be easier and to make decisions and execute on those decisions. In a lot of especially large organizations, what tends to happen is that I want to do something, I'm accountable for it, but then I need... $500 to buy something and then I need to go through seven different people to get those $500 so I think part of enabling and giving and making people accountable and agency really in that agency has to be this, the the ability to also make decisions that I think in some organizations are considered like senior leadership decisions of allocating funds or whatever it is um, and I found especially for for small fast-moving teams giving them that, that ability to spend specifically to spend money and just get outcomes and holding them accountable for that money is really is a catalyst for change and for things to move forward. Also, something very interesting I think that uh, Doug touched on is people mistake being accountable sometimes and being able to gracefully fail uh, with uh, almost as competing interests. I don't think it should be competing interests or in that sense, but also I think. We should allow people to fail, but also make sure that failure, while graceful, shouldn't be just accepted as part of the course. Like, sure, success is what comes with failures. I think we should all accept that, and we wouldn't have gotten to where we are if we did, most of us didn't believe that. Um, but it should be painful to fail. Like, you shouldn't want to fail, um, especially when it's costing businesses money. And I think once things accept that, it's it really is. It's, nothing is a better motivator than pain. You know, nothing changes when everything is hunky-dory because everything is hunky-dory. Why would I change it? But when I went through a car accident and then I made a mistake, oh, that was painful. I don't want to go through that again. And I know it's not nice to say in, the, in in some senses, but I think that's the reality for what makes greatness. You know, it's just that, that intrinsic motivation of just getting it done. And everything we're talking about, whether it's agency, whether it's uh, motivation, accountability, all of those things are kind of encapsulated in a move moved by that by that intrinsic motivation so i think that that is like yeah i'd love to, to hit that <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, um uh i i really um 
I think what you were, what you were saying really resonated with me. That I think um the the things that um I see as as maybe forcing functions for really high accountability and ownership within an organization within engineering really is I think what you're talking about around um, teams being put in a position where they have to I guess quote unquote behave like adults. So a good example of this I think is the concept of um, DevOps on call, where uh, engineers go on call for their own software and production, right? Um, I think when when you know that you or your friend maybe are woken up at two o'clock in the morning, the decisions you make are a little bit different, uh, especially on a Friday afternoon, right? Uh, and um, I think also the trade-offs you make and the, the priorities you, you place on each of those decisions as inputs, I think, um, changes because all of a sudden it's kind of visceral for you. And I think there's something similar at each level of the organization around how if you give people uh, the ability to, or, or you can't put them in a situation where you almost, uh, you know, take the training wheels off and force them to make decisions that they then have to own, all of a sudden, the a lot of the angst and frustration in a lot, a lot of the organization tends to melt away. You know, I think like engineers themselves tend to, ref, um, you know, uh, fall back into thinking about design decisions and architecture and levels of unit testing and all sorts of things that are very specific to our craft. Um, however, they're, they're usually the first to make trade-offs around those things and actually apply judgment the second they actually really feel like the end result is theirs. And it's hard to force that without giving them that that kind of space to say, hey, you know, this, this decision's yours. I back you, but also have a think about whether that's going to lead to a good outcome for you and your teammates. Um, so yeah, I definitely think like trying to uh, create that situation where people are forced to be adults uh, is really effective. Thanks, Doug. Thanks, Doug. Yeah, I so, just you want to add, jump back in again, mate? Yeah, I just just want to add because I think you touched on something really, really that I really agree with is that as well is that. You know, you make different decisions when you know someone's going to wake up in the middle of the night to pick up the phone and do something. I think, and that goes to, a quote, look, and I'll preface this by saying, I started my career in the army. So the way I built team is the way I, I was, I built teams in, in the army as a commander. So one of the interesting things is that a lot of places say, oh, you know, we're a family, we're this, we're that. I don't think businesses have are families. I think we are teams, high-performing teams. And in the army, you know, while I call my, my, Peers in the army, brothers, they are not my family. They wouldn't be my brothers if if we weren't a high-performing team. Because what the first thing that the army does or military units do to low-performing members of the team, either bring them up to par in performance or they exit them in an unsavory way. Um, so not that I'm saying businesses should do that, obviously. But I think the, the way to look at it as us as a high-performing team and kind of treating our, your teammates with compassion don't let them pick up that phone in the middle of the night. Make sure that you're doing the right thing so they don't have to do it, you know? Um, but yeah, 100%, I agree with all of it. Thanks, Nadav. Richard, let's go to you next. <laughs> okay, great answers. Uh, Nadav, I'm worried about how much pain there is in your life, but um, I hope you're okay. <laughs> uh, I think when I think about this, I think about the three P's, like process, platforms, and people, and putting an extra one on top of that. Um, if I start with each of those, like process, from my from my perspective, I think having a delivery delivery and prioritization process in place that provides like absolute clarity of priority and direction and why you're doing the thing that you're doing, 
and then trying to then insulate teams a little bit from the what can happen where there is a lack of that which is a sort of fire hose effect and, and sort of lack of clarity on what's the most important thing i should be working on and why it's, it's there is really really important and then also managing the team's capacity as well it's, it's very you often hear this sort of complaint that there's too much work going through teams and you want to try and find a balance i think where the work is manageable and sustainable but there also is, there's some stretch in there as well so it's not like you know so I think having that kind of clarity of of, of, um, of priorities and why you're doing stuff is, is really, really important. And it's something we spend a lot of time on and Mason is, is trying to do that. I think from a, a platform's perspective, platforms is a bit of a broad term, but like technology, tooling and, and core platforms is about having that kind of technology ecosystem and infrastructure that allows the teams to work with sort of flexibility and pace and it's interesting um, and you know the your tooling and your, your platform should really enable you and allow you to, to move at that kind of pace that you're looking forward um, there's lots of different ways you can do that like we sort of you know I try to I try to standardize our code bases onto single programming languages and that kind of stuff move more into cloud-based tooling have a strong set of architecture principles underpin everything we're doing but all those are quite important foundations to, to you know, allowing your teams to, to to be more fully engaged and to be working in an environment where they want to be. And I think the last one around people is obviously, I think that that'd be touched on this as well. It's about hiring the right people for your team and your culture, and then try to find that balance of having, I guess, this idea of pioneers and thefters. And, and I tend to move more. I prefer more the pioneers because I, I think there's a lot of value in that. The sort of curious and innovative um, developers that you can get into teams who can then really drive interesting and, and uh, change so um, and then I think over the top of the three P's I I thought about this a lot recently is, is trying to embed this idea of continuous improvement in your team or trying to build this culture of continuous improvement um, we call it um, one of our goals in our SLT is to try and build a playground for growth and amazing and trying to have this sort of culture where you know, innovation and trying to do something different and trying to seek out change where you think it's going to be benefits. It's not only, not like you have permission for it, but it's more there's an expectation there. And I think where we've had our biggest successes is where, where people have been brave and bold and tried something a bit new and a bit different. And um, and we've really seen big changes off the back of it, just, uh, off the back of those. So, um, so yeah, three Ps and a bit of continuous improvement over the top. Thanks, Richard. Well, I think we've covered that question uh, with a lot of great points. So, we'll, I'm, and I'm going to mix it up. I'm going to go to hopefully this doesn't throw everyone. I'm going to go to question four. I'm going to go to Nadav your question, then we're going to loop back. But uh, next question being, how has your assessment of engineers changed given the new tools in our space? So, Richard, I'm actually going to go back to you now um, and get your thoughts on what was question four, but now we've gone into question two. I was actually really interested to see what everyone else is going to say about this one. So, <laughs> um, and I, I don't know that I don't know that my assessment of engineers has changed a lot over the years. I think, um, kind of looping back to my, my previous answer, like I, I'm generally I'm always looking for the same thing in my engineers, which is, I guess, I'm looking for curious developers, um, and as I said, people who are, are brave and bold and want to try new things. I think, as I said. Um, we've had some real successes from like, like grassroots engineers wanting to try new technology or new platform and um, and actually sort of leaning into that and embracing it has been a real game changer for us and has really changed the way we work across a number of different parts of our environment. So um, I've still, I've always looked for that. I think I see the value of that more and more probably now than I, than I did when I first started. Um, so 
So yeah, I, I think for me, like having that culture that you know rewards experimentation. I mean, there's a limit to it, right? You, you can't just have a technology technology just saying, oh, now I want to do Pearl because I think it's really interesting. Now I want to do uh, Python because it's great. I want to try this thing over here. Like you have, there has to be kind of some structure around it. It can't just be the Wild West. And I think it, at times in the past we've been a little, a little bit like that, where we sort of ended up with sort of six or seven different programming languages across different stacks, and then it becomes a bit of a nightmare to try and manage and support that. So you've got to try and be a bit more sort of targeted and focused in that, but it, and assess those as they come through. But I think having those that sort of attitude of, of, of bravery and trying and trying new stuff is really important. Um, but yeah, I don't know that we, do, we I wouldn't say we, we have embraced a lot of new tooling around assessing like individual engineers' performance and anything like that. We, we've used um, a platform called Code Climate. They have a tool called Velocity, which sort of gives you metadata insights about, um, I guess, developers and number of commits and pull requests and sort of tries to discern some trending off the back of that. But it's probably less about individual performance and more, it's more interesting when you're looking at teams as a whole, I think. And, um, and how teams generally are performing. And you get some interesting metrics come out of that where, for example, we have teams that are working on our more heritage platforms and you can see that they they might do less commits and bigger commits and that kind of stuff. And your teams working on the more modern stacks, more modern platforms, which are much smaller, much more frequent commits is where you want to try and get to. So it's, um, so yeah, that's that's where we found some value in those tools. Thanks, Richard. Ronan, I'll go to you next. Yeah, I think I agree with Richard. I think like I don't really think about it any differently. Um, for me, it's it's all about the right people and then putting them in the right environment. So I've seen over the years where the same engineer in one team or one group, you know, almost be classed as as struggling, and then you sort of move them into an environment that suits them a little bit better for whatever reason. And they're a different person. So I think like as leaders, it, it's it's our job to make the environments like the one where the engineers feel like they can perform. And I think what everybody's sort of touching on here, I think in the last couple of bullet points is, is that sort of culture of psychological safety of people feeling like they can take risks that, you know, they can fail um, and that, you know, everything's going to be okay. And, and they can, they can sort of come to work to do their best work. So I, I think that's important. And, you know, Doug talked about being on call at 3am in the morning and it's like the accountability of that, I think. Like accountability can be a positive thing. Like people think of it as a negative thing. Like you're accountable when things go wrong, it's your fault. But I, I tend to look at it as, as a positive. Like I want to be accountable. It's my system. It's it's my it's my code. If there's a problem with it at 3 a.m., like I want to be woken up. Like I want to be the one dealing with it because it's, you know, it, it's impacting someone else. So I think like it, it's all down to like the people, hiring the right people and making a, an environment where, you know, they are, they feel safe to do their best work. So. Thanks, Ronan. Uh, Doug. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt. Um, also, thanks, Ronan. Uh, yeah, I think I, I really agree around um, it being something you've got to work quite hard on from a people and culture point of view uh, to get right in terms of um, you know hiring and, and retaining and growing people that um, you know are highly effective. But I guess the question is like, how how has my uh, assessment of engineers change given the new tools in our space and yeah I think at a high level no uh, but uh, I'll maybe expand on that a little bit I think um, uh, one one uh, I guess strategy for hiring and then assessing talent uh, that we have at Airtasker and that, that I've used across a, a number of organizations I've built over the last couple of years been really a focus on fundamentals um, and 
uh, ensuring that you know you're hiring people who are engineers or problem solvers first and specialists second. Uh, and, and that means that you know even starting at the interview process, you're kind of assessing people's kind of requirements, gathering skills, their logical and system design skills, algorithmic thinking, you know how they how they would potentially triage an operational incident, how they would think about escalation if a project or an incident is going off the rails, um, and less whether someone knows the latest shiny technology or or language or um, you know whatever the the latest buzzword is. And what I think I've found is that you know whether it's uh, you know, you may, you may recall 10, 15 years ago, everyone was kind of freaking out that WYSIWYG tooling was going to make web developers uh, all, all be out of a job pretty quickly. Um, but, you know, I think it just allowed folks to be quite uh, a little bit more effective and to democratize web design a little bit better. And I think you're seeing a lot of that now with, um, you know, these, these kind of large language models and AI and I guess the performance that you can extract from each of your team members if you give them that that additional kind of uh, tooling to be more effective and maybe write uh, code in a language they've never learned before and um, you know think about uh, quickly iterating on prototypes and things like that with the help of of AI and you know I think that over the next year or or, or even the next decade that's probably going to continue to be. Um, a big shift we see in the industry, but if anything, it means that assessing those fundamentals becomes even more important because I think the role of an engineer and, a, and an engineering leader will likely change, but um, those kind of core human uh, fundamental traits that a lot of uh, engineers and system thinkers tend to um, be, be gifted with, I think is is where most of the value will likely lie over the next little while. So assessing now and uh, making sure that people are building those fundamental skills within your teams is important. And I think it'll continue to be that way in the future. Thanks, Nadav. And Nadav, wrap us off with this one. Yeah, no, very interesting points. And I think quite quite illuminating as well. It's um, just, I was kind of reminiscing as, I, as you guys were talking about the way I used to do interviews, the way I do interviews today, the questions that I used to care about. And I think from an interview perspective, one of the things I found myself doing is that I stopped asking very tech specific questions and I really started focusing on fund the fundament fundamentals in general for coding, but also architectural fundamentals and then understanding. Like I, don't, I find myself asking a lot more today, when would you not do something? Tell me why. Like, I I used to take for granted that I had a fundamental belief as an engineer that we used to use, we need to use the right tools for, right, for the right job. And then something like microservices comes along and everybody wants to do microservices for everything. Well, why? Like, is it the, the be all and end all for, for all problems? So I think with LLMs and especially like the latest iteration, even as I was, I'm writing code in my free time and doing things, I can, I don't even need to to know exactly how to do something. It's a lot easier to edit. Ask it to write something for you, get a plug of something, and then, ah, let's change this, let's tweak that, and it will work. So long as I understand why it's, why I need to do this, when not to do it, and, you know, like, like how to piece the puzzle together, so to speak. And I've been trying to do that for my interviews more and more recently, but also one of the challenges I kind of ran into is that for senior developers, it's 
you'll get people who usually understand more. But what do you do with juniors? Because with juniors, there's like this now almost illusion that because they have these tools, they can do a lot more than what they actually understand that they can do or potentially you want them to even do because they might cause damage without understanding what they're breaking along the, the, the chain of the product, right? And I, I've been really struggling with how to um, to interview like the lower segment of our talent pool, like the, the less senior segment of our talent pool. So yeah, I think it's an open question for me in that regard. I don't have great answers, just a lot of, a lot of questions, maybe interesting questions. Thanks for that. Anyone have anything they want to add to that? I know we've, we've covered it quite broadly uh, as well, but if not, we'll, we'll move on to, to the next question, which is from Ronan uh, Banks. Why is understanding ownership so important to building high-performing engineering teams? And Doug, I'll get you to start us off with this one. Yeah, I think that we're covering a, a lot of common ground here, but I think for me, when, when we talk about ownership uh, and the impacts it has on the performance of a team it's probably like two things that really uh, jump out at me as um, being important here one and I, and I guess understanding ownership as well which I think is a maybe an extension of just ownership being a strong cultural thread in the uh, organization I think the, the the first thing is really around driving innovation and accountability so you know I think um, we've talked a bunch already around the fact that um, by being accountable and empowered to make uh, choices that may blow up in your face, uh, that it allows people to think or engineers to think a little bit more about what it is they're doing day to day. But with that, I think comes a, um, an element of innovation uh, where when, when people are forced to, to think for themselves, they also can get quite creative and that's powerful in an organization. So ownership's great from an accountability and, and um, effectiveness point of view, but I think there's also like a hidden element of, of um, driving creativity and innovation just through constraints because people can make their own decisions. Um, the other thing that I think is like huge here, which is probably um, more important than anything, is ensuring fast decision-making within an organization. So um, I, I definitely value... Uh, creating a culture where you can push as many big decisions down into the organization as possible to make uh, rapid progress. Um, I think that just leads to you you um, not just being more effective, but getting more done um, and uh, everyone kind of achieving the outcomes they're setting out to achieve. Uh, and I guess that, that, that ranges at all levels in the organization from, you know, um, doing away with some of the maybe historical thinking around things like design committees for engineers uh, uh, for engineering teams and um, you know uh, having uh, teams or tech leads or senior engineers be empowered to um, you know make their own call on um, decisions that maybe have the right level of blast radius that they can be supported in in making those types of decisions and I guess as you move um, up the organization again like allowing engineering leaders to play a larger role in uh, product decisions or, or uh, strategic decisions in the team outside of just whether um, the code is being shipped on time within their team and whether it's uh, stable and um, uh, you know has low operational load and all the other good things that come on the engineering side of the house but actually um, you know, allowing uh, engineering leaders 
to, to take more ownership over um, actually the direction that their team is running in. Um, so yeah, I think um, uh, there's a lot to be said around um, how uh, understanding ownership in an organization um, is helpful for people to know who to, who to turn to uh, when you know they want a final call on something uh, or for us to understand what the hierarchy in an organization is, if that's important, depending on the culture. But I actually think it's um, uh, much more powerful just in terms of helping teams run fast and be effective through faster decision making. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. The Doug. Yeah. Um, actually, it really resonated with me what you said, Doug, regarding the design committees for engineers and stuff. And I, one of the things I actually noticed is that when teams and individuals are truly onerous of their work, they would, they would actually have discussions with their, with their peers just to make sure that they're doing the right things and learn how to do maybe things better. So it's almost as if when someone accepts that they're taking for given that they own something and they want to own it. And now the next thing, the next thought on their mind, because it's a given that they own it, is how do I do it well? Because I want to, I don't think anybody comes and I don't think anybody does anything with the thought of, oh, I'm going to do a bad job today. I'm going to, I'm going to. Do this task and i'm going to do it as badly as i can i don't think anybody ever does that i think we all want to win intrinsically and i think once we accept ownership is the next thing is to do things well and i think these things these great intentions behind the design committees become almost intrinsically motivated people who own things and i think that's that to me is why it's really important to get people to un not only understand what ownership is and i think ownership as well a different organization is interpreted differently um, for me personally and the organization where I'm at, um, ownership really is being able to take something, understand why it is that I'm doing it, why is it important, um, how do I make a difference to it, and then committing to it. I think commitment is something that gets overlooked when it comes to ownership in general, is that people say, yeah, I own it, great, okay, but, okay, you own it, so can you commit to getting it done because it's really important it's like it's good to understand the why's and it's good to understand everything around it but also this personal commitment of saying i own it now i'll get it done uh, i think is really important and I th within the scope of understanding ownership nowadays probably in the last 12 months more than any other time in my before in my career if someone asked me about ownership the next thing that will come out of my mouth is well ownership is is taking it on and accepting that you own it, but then making a commitment. Yeah. Thanks, that Nadal. Uh, Richard. Well, um, I think first of all, Doug, I think your answer around um, uh, fast decision-making is, is super, super important. And I, I really love the way you summed that up. Something that I think in the organization currently, we, we kind of granted we, we do move quite quickly and make fast decisions, but I've seen the impact of that in other organizations and uh, where they don't have that and it, it's quite damaging i think having clear ownership and accountability is, is super important in, in any business i think the lack of that does create uh either vacuums or fear uncertainty doubts procrastination listlessness all those sort of things that we're trying to actively avoid um so i think trying to have that that sort of that process of, of clear ownership is embedded into the business is, is, is really critical, both in terms of like ownership of, I guess, key initiatives or programs or work that you're driving through and having clear like leadership and racing models around that or whatever it is that, that works for you. 
and also ownership of platforms as well, specific platforms and who's who's accountable for maintaining those platforms and keeping them alive and, and happy and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of it's the same sort of problem you're solving in each place. The, the interesting thing about ownership is is what causes lack of ownership because actually I kind of think if you if you step back it's not that hard a problem to solve once you underpin why there was a lack of ownership or accountability so I think if you're like you get some of the reasons why there's a lack of ownership it might be lack of clarity like not clear definition of all the responsibilities who owns this who owns that so that's that's probably quite an easy one to fix is there too many competing priorities so people can't physically own something because there's too much stuff going on around them um, again, that should be a relatively easy one to fix. Is it, um, you know, lack of personal accountability within an individual? I mean, that's probably a slightly trickier one, but that's, you still work through coaching and mentoring and support to try and help someone uh, get to that position. Um, or is it maybe a lack of understanding as to why this thing is important and why it needs ownership? Which again, you'd, you'd hope that would be a relatively straightforward one to fix. So, um, look at. I don't, know. It, I don't think it's the most difficult problem to solve, but it obviously takes a lot of focus and, and effort to, to, to get those uh, those kind of ownership mentality in place. Uh, and then once you do, I think you fly. The only other thing I'd say around this is that um, sort of my experience, and this might be papering over the cracks a little bit, I'm not sure, but in my experience, where I've made really good hires, it's been with people who often can see a gap in ownership or a gap in that, that sort of that void and step into it and take the ownership uh, and try and drive something along off the back of it. Again, it's probably paper over the cracks of maybe not having clear roles, responsibilities defined or, or whatever it might be. But I think where we've had really good success is where there has been those gaps, is having the people who are proactive and can step in and fill the gap and take the ownership. And it allows you to keep moving whilst you kind of work out some of those other issues I've described around that. Thanks that, Richard. And Ronan. Okay, so I think we, it sounds like we all kind of look at ownership in, in the same way. Um, I think what was interesting to me is everybody um, talked about understanding ownership. And that's exactly uh, sort of the, the angle that I came at it a number of years ago. It's like I, the word ownership means different things to different people. And like, can I put a proper definition on, on what ownership is? So I spent a lot of time, I put together some working groups made up of engineers and product and scrum masters and managers. and just did those working sessions, talked about ownership, and then sort of collated the results into sort of like my my own personal definition of, of ownership and like it maybe a template to, to how you actually give ownership. So the one thing that came out of it for me is that ownership is not something that can be given to a team. It's actually the end of a process. It's not the start, it's the, it's the end. And what it manifests in to me is a sense of care that the teams have to the products and the systems that they're working on. That's that's what we want, but it's it's the end, it's, it's not the start. And so I distill it down into sort of three key things that you need to do in the in your environment to set up good ownership of your team. So the, the first one, and I think everybody has touched on all these, so I'm not saying anything new here. So one is you have to give teams a problem space that they're responsible for. Uh, it needs to be sort of big and broad enough and um, it can't be too small. So like I've, I've been involved in, in the past where we put all of the microservices on a spreadsheet and then we tried to give uh, owning teams to each service. And that's just not the right level. Like you, you need, it needs to be big and broad enough that you can have really, really clear boundaries um, of that ownership. And that's one of the things we're actually trying to do in Macquarie here at the moment is we're, we're setting up um, platforms based on business capabilities and that those platforms will have very, very clear boundaries and should help with the ownership. So that, that's the first one is like the, a problem space that the team can own. Second one is like they need to be given adequate time 
to work and to work through the problems. Like the time horizon of their owning that problem space needs to be multi-year, not multi-months. Like you, you see that if you give a team a, a short-term project, the the motivations for sort of doing the hard work to set themselves up for future um, productivity, it's just not there because they know they're going to be moved on to something else or, you know, it's, it's not going to be them that has to, to feel the pain of the, the 3 a.m. Um, wake up call. So it needs to be sort of the, the right time horizon where they, they need to know that they're on that problem space for a meaningful period of time. And then the third one, like every single person touched on this, is decision making. So if, you, if I tell you that you're accountable for the system, but then I don't allow you to make the changes that you deem necessary to stop it from falling over, that's a really, really unfair place to put someone in. So you need to have the decision making to control your own destiny. And I think everyone talked about like decision making, pushing it down into the teams. Um, I think uh, Nadav talked about like, you know, you have decision making, but then you need to go and ask for the budget to make the changes that you need to do. Like that's, that's not giving someone decision making. Like it, it needs to it needs to be real. Um, I, I have and also I've seen in the past like that the concept of design communities, like it's probably the most disempowering thing I've ever seen happen to teams is having teams from all over the business with no skin in the game come in at the end and say oh no we don't like your design for this reason it's always very subjective and it's 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 totally disempowering and takes away from that team's decision making and sense of ownership so yeah for me that's it like it's sort of the three key things that you need to have in place in an environment for a team to feel that ownership and then that's what you get at the end is that that sort of sense of care with the long time horizons of ownership of those systems so Thanks, Ron. And a great way to, I think, wrap up uh, that question. So I appreciate that. And we'll move on now to uh, the last question, which is from Doug Bing. What mechanisms, tools, and cultural rituals do you find the most effective in keeping teams engaged and performing? So Nadav, I'm going to throw it to you to start us off with this one. Yeah, um, interesting. So I'll preface this by, or qualify this by saying that our brand promise as a business is to get back to any customer who needs assistance within 30 seconds. Uh, so what we do, every person in the organization, whether it's there an executive or uh, a developer, we will put them on our live chats um, to engage with our customers. And we'll do this um, part of onboarding, and then we'll do this as a recurring thing every few months. Uh, and it does a few things. One, obviously, it, it kind of gets every person in the organization to understand our customers, see what they're feeling, their pains. Um, where they struggle. Sometimes they struggle with something that we think is trivial, like, you know, one-time password or something. Um, so that's something that we do for executives. What we also do is uh, for queues. Don't know if you guys do this in your organizations, but we will call, actively call customers and ask them how they're going, um, what, how they like the company, how do they, um, what do they know about the industry at the moment? What, did, what have they heard about the competitors? Do they have any uh, suggestions for us? Um, and doing those things, just those things, creates a lot of empathy, especially from developers who don't usually have day-to-day -day interactions with customers, with the customer, and with the people who have to engage with them. If you've done customer service, it's horrible. Uh, you get people yelling at you, and then when you ask for assistance, can you add this one feature? Suddenly you got this developer that doesn't even know why you need that feature. Say, ah, no, we got more important things because the deployment pipeline is not working. Like, a lot of empathy. You find new type of empathy when you have to go through the same uh, thing. Um, and I'll tell you that I have these amazing engineering rituals that make all the difference. Um, but really what makes, what I found that makes all the difference is connecting every person in the organization, whether they're an engineer, a salesperson, 
or anything in between to what the business does and who it does it with. Um, and for us, it's putting people on our live chats and having them interact with the customers. Um, it also creates a lot of motivations for developers to not only not want to pick up the phone in the middle of the night, but making sure that no one else has to have pick up any other phones in the middle of the night so they can help them because they've picked up those phones themselves. And they also get to work with those people. So they get, to, especially in a work where people work hybrid, you get to know people in the business that you wouldn't otherwise get to know. Um, Grant you, we are here in the office, but not everybody is in the office all the time. Yeah. Thanks for that. Uh, Richard, what's the next? Yeah, uh, very similar to that. Um, you know, we, we try and stay close to our customers and understand the experiences they're having with our platforms and services. You know, I read every one of our app store reviews, Twitter comments, a tag Mason. Be a bit brutal sometimes, but it's it's good to get that kind of transparent feedback from your customer base, and, and it's a good motivator in terms of going right. We need to get on top of this or sort this particular problem out, or whatever it might be. I think from an engagement point of view, um, also we use we use tools to try and help us understand where our engagement is internally. So like the culture apps, we do culture app surveys. I think if you're going to do that, it's really important, uh, and if you're going to ask people. You know, various questions about how engaged they are, etc. Then it's important then to take that, you know, understand where there's issues, and then play that back to the organisation with a bit of a plan around what are you going to do to address some of the areas where we're not very not performing, or not performing where we'd like to be. So having making sure you have that sort of closed feedback loop of we heard what you said, this is what we're going to do to action it, and then following up on that at a later date to say okay, here's what we've got to is everyone good, and, and then what's next on that on that list. I think um, in terms of sort of like the big okay cultural things that we do uh, outside of that there's two or three key ones that we've had a lot of success with the first one was you know a few years ago we we used to have a few questions come up like, like why are we doing this stuff why are we doing this particular thing how does that relate to strategy like how does it all hang together um and one of the things we've started doing over the last few years is instead of sort of the exact committee getting together and coming up with a plan and going right off we go we try and actually bring the whole organization along on our, our yearly annual planning process so once a year the whole organization will go off for two days and we'll basically build a plan on a page together for the, for the year that's coming up and the whole business will get to hear from different leaders as to these are the things that are important to me and this is why and how it dials up into the overall sort of like revenue need goals and that kind of stuff that we have um, but having a really deep sort of two-day immersion into the strategy and why we're doing stuff and why that's important um, has been really like really really impactful for us as a, as a whole business and then when it comes to sort of doing our quarterly planning and, and divvying up work between teams every team then has a very clear connection back into the strategy and, and answering that why why is it important why is what i'm doing today how is it having an impact on the, on the business and the strategy uh, i think the other things we do and um mason's a very sort of culture focused values-led people oriented business um, we talk a lot about our culture we've got four very simple values empathy is a core value at Amazon and um, we talk about that like every day like our values like uh, and like other decisions we're making you know are they empathetic to, to other people in the business are they empathetic to our customers and sort of being being very specific and deliberate in tying that decision making back to our values at every point along the way so that your values aren't just the thing that you'll agree in a room once through five years and that's it they get parked to one side like it's, it's actually part of the DNA of the business and we actually have um as part of that we actually have a, a cross organization team called the culture squad 
and their job is basically to keep us on track with that and make sure that we're doing um you know whatever events or or csr whatever it might be that that makes sure that we're still focusing on our values and not getting lost in the day-to-day of strategy and execution um and so in addition to that we also have a culture day at least once a year the whole organization goes off off site and again we just spend the day not talking about work or strategy or execution or anything like that, but just talking about culture and how we how is our culture going and surfing to change and just drawing us back to the, to the roots of that. And so the very last thing I'll say around sort of, um it's a bit more around ways of working is our half my team is based in Manila and half of it is onshore here in, in Australia. And we've been very deliberate in the way that we've set that process up. So we, we've been very deliberate in not going like the sort of like traditional and inverted commas offshoring where you know, I come up with a bunch of requirements for it to a team overseas and then they send something back in six weeks. You can't go, oh, what's this? It doesn't quite work. Uh, when we set up the team in Manila six, six years ago, we were very deliberate saying that the team over in Manila is it's essentially the same as the team here. Like every every delivery team I have is made up of a few people in Sydney, a few people in Manila, and they work together as a single team. Um, all the sort of reward and recognition and all that other kind of stuff is it's a very, is it's a line between the two between the two teams uh, and the team in Manila feel as, as much as part of a mason as, they, as as I do here in Sydney so making sure we, and that's been really really impactful for us in terms of making sure that you know you have that high levels of engagement across across no matter where you are in the world that you're working for a mason thanks Richard uh, Ronan so I think that Av and Richard both talked about like the, the customer obsession um, and I think one, one of the nice little things that we do here at Macquarie is all of our salaries get paid into a Macquarie bank account at the end of the month. Um, and so we all, by that very nature, we're all customers <laughs> of Macquarie um, by default. So that, that's one, that, that really helps. Like everybody's like using it day to day as their banking app. And so like, you know, we do think like customers because we all are customers. So that's that's one thing. I won't talk about customer reception because I think uh, Nadav and Richard covered it. But I think like the, everything that we've been talking about for the last hour, is, is, is what gives the the engagement. It's It's been in an environment surrounded by people, like-minded people with good values that feel they're empowered, feel they're solving problems, feel they're safe to take risks and feel like they have the ownership of the systems. And, you know, we they should be proud of the products that they're building. They should be proud of the, the systems that they're maintaining and the, and the code that they're writing. And I think that in itself is, is super empowering and like that's going to lead to engaged teams. So... I'll leave it to Doug now. I think we're, we're short on time to sort of wrap up. <laughs> Thanks, Renan. Yeah, yeah. I think um, it, it's been great to align or, or at least feel um, aligned with you all over the last hour because it feels like there's lots of um, similar leadership thinking here. So that, that's um, great to be among passionate peers. I think um, uh, there has been a lot of, of um, what I feel is important uh, from a mechanisms, tools, and cultural rituals. Uh, to keep teams uh, engaged and performing that I think you've all shared. I think the things that m- maybe I'd I'd um, add and then wrap up around, you know, I think um, the, the I, I very um, specifically chose the word mechanism in my question. Uh, you know, I think um, it's, it's often uh, talked about negatively when you refer to, to process and like process with a capital P. Um, and wanting to have light process or wanting to do away with process. Um, but the concept of a mechanism to me, I think is a little bit different. It's kind of process that ensures an outcome by default. 
where you know i think um richard was talking about how uh your teams in manila are are kind of in some ways um forced to interact with the local teams and be team members with those those folks as a way as a mechanism or a forcing function to ensure that they have empathy for each other and that they're um, looking out for each other and kind of acting and moving as one um and i I think that um those types of um uh organizational or leadership mechanisms are really really powerful so for us at airtasker i think uh culturally similar to nadav um we're we're a mission and, and values led organization i think richard also talked about values and this kind of um uh i guess superpower that you get from having shared language and vocabulary around what it means to work at a company uh and how everyone kind of thinks um and shares similar uh kind of virtues and values uh as one uh, at airtasker we we have uh, a documented set of values that also you know are a shared vocabulary on everything from how we make decisions to how we think about performance and um uh you know avoiding um uh things like fiefdoms and and being very open uh in our culture i think uh we we also put a fair amount of effort into running similar to richard i guess the uh, concept of of pulse surveys and understanding how um people's morale is is impacted by changes in the business and try to be quite accountable in in sharing back what our plans to address those things are i think there's two other areas that i think are really important one is uh, a set of tools around build or, or mechanisms around building user empathy so uh, both Nadav and, and Ronan shared um, that they that their staff or their engineers and um, members on their teams are forced to use the product for want of a better description um, and that's really a, an important part of our culture as well um, you know I think you know the um, the concept of dog fooding has been around in our industry for a long time doesn't really get referred to too much as as um that anymore. I think there's been a number of replacements like drinking your own champagne or something like that. At Etasca, um we incentivize all of our staff to to use um, the platform. We give them credit to uh to get some tasks done. So if they need a cleaner or something done around the house, they can um use part of their employment benefit to to use the product and get that done. Uh, and we also um uh you know push and encourage them to to actually take tasks on every now and then if they've got some downtime and and really live and breathe our tasker experience because uh, i think there's nothing better uh within an engineering team when it comes to making trade-offs and also driving an energy uh, and sense of accomplishment than uh understanding and empathizing with their users both internal and external uh and then feeling like they're empowered to go solve that problem um so yeah i think there's um a lot of benefit that we get from that but it really starts with us just creating those mechanisms that uh uh make it easy for our staff and our engineers to to use our product and and build empathy for our for our users um and then on the execution front i i share a lot of um similar techniques to i think or uh what you've all shared around you know how you plan and execute in a way that allows teams to have high ownership and be accountable but also move as one um so at airtasker we we have our product teams owning vertical slices of our customer and tasker experience and that 
that includes like the key metrics and drivers around what's going on in terms of how we measure the effectiveness of the product uh, or system in production, uh, all the way back through to the actual microservices and things like that that, that power it. Um, and I think what that tends to lead to is, uh, you know, as a number of you've called out, this this kind of sense of of ownership that naturally comes from um, being responsible for part of both your, your customer or your user experience, but also all of the systems and the code base health that sits behind it. Ronan called out the fact that, um, you know, the most effective way to get benefit out of that is to uh, give people a problem and give them space to work the problem and give them enough time to work the problem. But I think from an um, execution point of view, having a planning cadence and maybe a stakeholder management check-in cadence that isn't micromanaging and checking in with people every five minutes, but defining a clear vision uh, on some regular planning cadence. We, we tend to plan on six month basis um, uh, or time periods and then giving teams time to work those customer problems within that period and, and um, uh, you know, check in with them occasionally on how, how their key metrics and their business quote unquote is tracking both from a product and engineering point of view. But uh, I guess giving them um, empowerment within boundaries and allowing them to, to then uh, execute within that and make decisions and learn along the way. Um, so I think we share a lot of uh, uh, similar kind of ideas here, but um, the, the, I think there's a common thread there around ownership and accountability and how you create an environment that just makes that happen by default. Awesome. Thanks, Doug. Look, I think we'll we'll wrap it up there. I know uh, there's been some amazing answers, and as you said, like thoroughly gone through a lot of key points that hopefully will help uh, a lot of individuals, whatever you know, part of the journey they're on, uh, and teams across engineering in how to cultivate a motivated, accountable, and driven engineering team. Uh, so appreciate everyone for jumping on, uh, and thanks for listening. And see you all next time.